Hey, now we open this episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, remembering John Huber, aka Brody Lee, aka Luke Harper, who died over the weekend at age 41 of a lung disease that his wife said is non COVID 19 related. Uh, just crushing news on a holiday weekend, obviously, or any weekend. Normally, I would write a bunch of bullet points when we do this, but it's probably best to speak about Brody extemporaneously because, you know, we, we've lost a lot of people this year and throughout our entire lives watching professional wrestling, all of the legends, all of the big names who have passed, but it's it's luckily rare that it happens to someone who's a contemporary, uh, someone who is a current active performer. And when it comes to Brody Lee, you know, most of us began to know him at least as Luke Harper. You know, he was Brody Lee in the independence, but I, I think only so many people, you know, knew him from that day. So, so my introduction to him was as Luke Harper with the Wyatt family. And I know he didn't have all of the success that we, and I, I use the royal we there, wanted him to in WWE. But I still do believe it's ultimately where we got his best work, largely because his AEW career, by comparison, was unfortunately so short. You know, you look back at what he did in WWE. He was an intercontinental champion. Unfortunately, it was only for one month, a two-time tag team champion. Uh, he won the NXT tag team titles. And then, you know, certainly eventually became the second ever TNT champion over in AEW. But I thought the best work of, of Harper's career uh, we'll talk about Brody Lee in a moment. The best work of Harper's career came in 2016 to 2017, and it was during a time where WWE creative had really fallen off a cliff. Uh, they reunited the Wyatt family with Bray Wyatt. Randy Orton was kind of getting involved to almost worm his way, snake his way through the group to tear it apart from the inside out. And Harper turned face during that storyline because he was basically excommunicated out of the faction or group, I guess. Uh, not only was his wrestling consistently great during that time, but he was over as all hell with the fans. It is my belief that in 2016, end of that year into early 2017, he was on the verge of stardom, like legitimately. It seemed like everything had been set up or was being set up for a triple threat match at WrestleMania. But Harper lost to Randy Orton twice in singles matches. Then he had a number one contendership against AJ Styles. I think Wyatt was champion at the time, even during that. He lost the number one contendership. And you have to remember that for any problems that you may have with WWE's booking today, the booking in 2016, 2017 was far worse in most cases. So instead of a Wyatt family triple threat, with Wyatt Orton Harper at WrestleMania that likely would have torn the house down. Again, Harper was getting insane reactions from the television audience, the live audience, whenever he would wrestle because he was allowed to just do it in the ring. The suicide dives and his entire moveset was finally showing up and it was working. But instead of us getting that triple threat and a potential Luke Harper WWE championship win, right? Like, think about that. We got a pretty awful by comparison. Wyatt Orton match. Harper ends up in the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal. He didn't even win it. He got eliminated by Titus O'Neil. So that's really where his WWE career 
ended. He had that moment to get over and it was squandered by booking for really no good reason whatsoever. After that, we got the Bludgeon Brothers, which you guys all know, long-term listeners of mine know how I felt about that. Um, They both got hurt, I think, while they were the Bludgeon Brothers early on. And then he eventually, Luke Harper, became Brody Lee again and went to AEW. So we can kind of pause it there. We'll talk about his AEW career and some other stuff in a moment, Chris. But you know, Luke Harper as a WWE talent, he's always going to, he's not a, he wasn't a guy who you're going to forget. Like he made his presence known on WWE television and that flash of brilliance. I, I think he had that brilliance in him throughout his whole career, but we got to see a flash of it. And I think it was so disappointing for so many fans, not even knowing the type of character that this guy is in real life as a human being that we're now learning from all of his peers. These people who are you know, just thrilled to tell these tales of, I mean, they wish it was under better circumstances, but to tell these tales of him being a great husband, father, friend, a a boisterous character in the backstage, a guy who they could lean on. We don't, we didn't know all of that about him. And it hurts even more for me that he didn't get that opportunity to have that level of professional success that it looked like he was on the verge of having in 2016 and 2017. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been real heartbreaking to see all the stories from wrestlers in WWE and AEW who, who talk about him. I mean, everybody has a story and everybody has an example uh, of him being such a great guy. I, I can't recall a reaction like this, you know, to a wrestler's passing in, in quite some time. And there, there was one that really stuck out to me or especially really got me. And it was it was Big E. He tweeted, uh, he, he was work. Uh, he tweeted, I was working Seth Rollins on main event more than six years ago. I was floundering in my career and my confidence was slipping. Brody excitedly stopped me after to tell me how well he thought I'd done and that it showed the office I had much more to offer. Those words meant so much. That man, like, the just like the idea of being nice to people, the idea of supporting people, those things mm-hmm. make a difference just in the world. And it really seemed like Brody Lee was one of those guys who just lifted the people up around him whenever he felt somebody uh, uh, was down. And just, man, what a, what a terrible loss for the wrestling world, the wrestling community. Um, you know, and in, regardless of everything we saw in his career, just he seemed like an incredibly good dude and a, and a great father and family man. And just, man, it has been gut wrenching these last handful of days to see all the reactions come in. It has been, and it's been really consistent um, and heartfelt. Like you said, I mean, Bray Wyatt posted something on his Instagram. I can't even, it's so long that I can't even repeat it, but it's just, it just talks about their relationship, their friendship, the fact that he promised Brody that once his son starts wrestling, he'll do the job for him and put him over on house shows and, you know, f- you know, little funny things like that. But it's it's just so clear, people that you would think you might have a relationship with, you know, you see those tweets and you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. They worked together for a long time or yeah, I could see them being similar, but people who you would have no idea that this guy was great friends with. And it just comes, you know, shocking, like Becky Lynch um, was posting a bunch of great photos of her and and John. And it's, it just, it's really touching. And to see, you know, we'll move over to the AEW portion of his career. Um, Obviously, it was short. 
he was revealed as the Exalted One and definitely revived a totally dead Dark Order faction. I hated that faction before him. And while I only liked it marginally better with him and didn't particularly enjoy the vignettes that he did early on as the Exalted One, he did really good work live on TNT. The, the bits I saw of him from Being the Elite, the YouTube series, were really funny. So he was kind of finding once again that spark and starting to come into his own again. He did hold the TNT title for about six weeks, losing it back to Cody in such short order. We all thought was bad booking. It does seem like this lung condition was not revealed or found, I guess, by him until afterwards. So I don't think it had to do with that. But ended up losing probably two of his three biggest matches in the end. You could clearly see, though, that there was creative fulfillment of being a leader, being able to create his own character. And for such a short time there, I mean, under a year, he clearly affected so many people just in AEW. And this is not a company where they're touring. They weren't previously. They were planning to, but they never got the opportunity to because of the pandemic. So these are people he's seeing, what, two days a week, three days for a long weekend. And he was able to affect them to that degree. Uh, I think it's great what AEW is doing this upcoming Wednesday. They're doing a Brody Lee tribute show with um, one match completely booked by his son uh, of all his favorite wrestlers going up against some heels. And the whole card features Dark Order members and people that are that are faces that were close to Brody going up against heels. Um, you know, AEW had previously planned a two-week New Year's bash. It was going to be the week prior to New Year's Eve and then the week after. Uh, they've pushed that back to the first two weeks of 2021. So I just think that's all a really good touch. And it is a little, you know, sad to see that, not a little, very sad to see that really the two opportunities he's had in his career to make something happen, to have that professional fulfillment. The first was in WWE, just booking. They, they, they had the chance there. They didn't capitalize on it. And in AEW, I really felt like he was just starting to come into his own. And just as it looks like something is starting to matriculate there with him, he dies at age 41. I, I got to say, I think so. So you're not a um, regular viewer of BTE, right? I was. So I had watched okay. every episode up until probably like three, four months ago. But with everything happening in, in the world and, you know, the election and with um, work, you know, for both of us, of course, uh, and the just how sports has changed, plus the podcast. I just haven't had the time anymore. Yeah, well, I I don't. So I don't remember what part, I don't know what part you were at, but he he really revived Dark Order and brought it to where it is now, which is still a pretty prominent position. And he did that through BTE. I, I mean, I I like you had stopped watching for a little bit because of stuff going on, and my brother would text me. He's like, "Dude, the Dark Order on BTE is incredible. <laughs> you got to watch this." And and and. They they did a um they did a tribute show to Brody on Sunday, that was a lot of uh, just a lot of the clips of Brody on BTE and the stuff they did some outtakes and that they all talked about what um what he meant to them and uh, yeah no he was he was hilarious but also like serious in them and and you know now we see the Dark Order still got a pretty prominent position and I really think the work he did with uh, on BTE is kind of what moved them in a little bit of a different direction and, and brought a lot of guys up like John Silver and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, th I think, you know, 
Dark Order and, and the, 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 the raising the careers of a lot of these people who were under him as the exalted one will will be one of his legacies in pro wrestling. I did see the BTE special for Brody Lee. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt like it kind of got me not caught up, obviously, on BTE, but on him and like yeah. why he was so successful and why people were praising him on being the elite. So I did see that. I also, of course, we all saw Raw on Monday night. And I personally thought it was extremely touching the way they honored him throughout that entire show. They did the graphic at the beginning. Tom Phillips opens the show. It's Monday. You know what that means. Drew McIntyre said the same thing. Uh, Alexa, I think he also said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Alexa Bliss did as well. Ricochet did the discus clothesline. Woods wore his name on his armband. He also did like the Harper stance and the discus clothesline when Retribution came out. Uh, T-Bar and Mace did the like the headbutt type of thing that the Bludgeon Brothers, basically Harper and Rowan, used to do. Um, Phillips, when when Woods did the discus clothesline, he from a call standpoint, he called yeah yeah yeah, and he also named it the Harper clothesline. So mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then New Day on Raw Talk also talked about Brody Lee extensively. They gave them like four minutes to just kind of sit there and have Xavier Woods talk about him right into the camera. So. You know, I thought WWE did a lot. I saw Brian Myers uh, on Twitter complaining that WWE didn't do a 10-bell salute or a huge video package or something. I just thought, I think it's misplaced sentiment to kind of try to judge and police how people honor the dead. I just, that's not really, I mean, I think doing something is important. And I think that's what WWE did. When you look at it, the 10-bell salute is generally for legends or for people who die while employed as on-screen characters, your Eddie Guerrero's, people like that. Um, should there have been a video package? I mean, maybe, but the turnaround on a holiday weekend is pretty tight. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if there's one on SmackDown. Even when Randy Savage died, they couldn't put together a video package until the second show. So you know, maybe they just wanted more time to do it. He's also, of course, an AEW employee, or you know, he was. Um, so they should also get the opportunity to honor him as they see fit, which they're clearly planning to do yeah. on Wednesday. So I thought what WWE did during Raw was honestly great. I, I cannot remember a situation, including for Pat Patterson. You know, they did that memorial match for him, but where so many individual wrestlers honored a, a wrestler in their own way over the course of an entire show. Um, yeah, and, you know, and, that, and that's why this one was different because it was, I thought it was great. It was different because it was an active guy, a younger guy who worked with all these people. You know, you know. Obviously, Brian Myers wanted WWE more. I'm not going to tell a guy how he should feel about his friend dying or anything like that. But of course, I, I, of course. It, it was it was evident, obviously, that a lot of this was um, driven by the guys in the locker room who wanted to honor their friend. And I just, in, I just in general thought that was very cool and very touching. Yeah, like I, people talk about WWE, how scripted it is, right? Um, all that stuff is not happening without approval. Like, so all of those things that we saw was WWE and the wrestlers themselves tributing him. They, they, Hey, I want to do this during my match. Okay. You know, I want Phillips on commentary. I'm going to say these couple things. Okay. Like, so, you know, I don't, I don't know how people can kind of disassociate one from the other. Like clearly there was approval here for all of this to happen. So I, I don't know. I thought it was very touching. Me too. And you know, I, you know, I, I don't think it's um, I've never had a problem admitting as a man, you know, crying or getting teared up or choked up on stuff. 
And throughout the Brody Lee stuff, I, I generally haven't just because, I mean, this is not a person I knew personally and I, I never interviewed him. So I had no personal connection. But when Woods did the discus lariat and Tom Phillips called it, it got me a little bit. Yeah. So like, you know, I, I mean, if that's getting me on the second hour of Raw, yeah, they're honoring the guy. Like everyone does it in their own way. Um, again, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a little bit more on SmackDown. Uh, NXT, I certainly expect at least the card, you know, at the very beginning. And AEW Dynamite on Wednesday should be a very special show. And man, final show of the year. Think about a year ago, the last 2019 episode of AEW Dynamite. It closed with the Dark Order. It was, people hated it. I mean, truly hated it. Think about where that group has come. Even if you, I mean, you know, I'm not a huge Dark Order fan, but Think about now a calendar year later where that group has come. And then now we're closing 2020 with the death honoring a guy who has passed, who revived that entire faction over a calendar year. I just think it's to juxtapose those two years and those two shows um, is something. It's really interesting. So John Huber, Brody Lee, Luke Harper, dead at age 41. Rest in peace. Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, data. And it's Tuesday, so you know what that means. We are back with another WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a lot to talk about on today's show because guess what? SmackDown and Raw over the last few days were both really damn good. Chris, I think we saw the best episode of Raw in the last few months, albeit wasn't a huge fan of the final like 15 seconds. Uh, But outside of that, I think Raw bounced back in a major way. Uh, from some really terrible episodes. And SmackDown on Friday night was really a special holiday episode coming off an NFL game, uh, basically a four-match card, and there was really nothing else that happened on the entire show. All of the matches bangers. They tried to capture that NFL audience. They succeeded. They didn't keep all of it, obviously, but they kept a good portion. Uh, So I thought WWE, over this long weekend, this holiday weekend, really put its best foot forward, at least way better than we've seen from both brands combined in the last few months. No, yeah. I mean, right before we started recording, uh, Adam said, uh, this is probably going to be a long show because I have a lot of notes. And it's simply because it was a really good two episodes of wrestling. It, it was honestly maybe the best back-to-back SmackDown Raw we've had in a, in a long time. And I think a big reason for it is because there's such a long break between TLC and Royal Rumble, and it's forcing them to do some like smaller things in between. And this is what wrestling should always be, where we have a big episode of SmackDown, a big episode of Raw, not just every episode is just meant to be a slow transition from one pay-per-view to the other, and we get things repeated. They have to do something different here, and I think we're getting that, and I'm liking it. That's what Raw felt like. It felt different on Monday night. Just they tried different things, which it's really, that's not a strange concept or it shouldn't be in wrestling, but for, I guess for Raw recently it, it was. I mean, Raw, um, 
has been in the dumps, really, truly, the last at least two months, probably three. And this really stood out as a high quality episode of television and coming off of a SmackDown that, I mean, it was a pay-per-view. <laughs> I mean, it was it was as good of a SmackDown as you could really ask for on a, for a Friday night television show on a holiday. I just thought they crushed it. Uh, we're going to get into all of that momentarily on this podcast. A couple of reminders. First, you better follow us on Twitter. Like how many times do I have to ask at getting overcast? It's the holiday season. Give us the gift of your follow and, and don't just follow us. Retweet our stuff, like our stuff. We'd greatly appreciate it. Do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop a five-star rating and review. I've seen that a lot of you have actually gone ahead and done that recently, so I appreciate it. What's strange is Apple isn't showing all of our newest reviews for some reason. I'm going to have to look into that and find out why, but we got like five or six new you know, written up reviews, which I always appreciate, and I thank you guys for going ahead and doing that. But don't forget, if you have not yet, five-star rating and review. Of course, you can follow Chris on Twitter. I never gave you a full introduction. Vintage Chris Vanini. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris Vanini. And of course, you can follow the Silver King at Silverstein Adam. So as I said, we do have a long show to get to, but we also have a long week of shows because as promised, the Getting Over Awards, aka the Meaties, are set for tomorrow. Wednesday's episode will be dedicated to our year-end awards. We got a ton of responses from our voting uh, that I sent out over Twitter, but you guys were able to vote on Google Forms. A lot of surprising choices, I have to say, from the fan vote. So we're going to combine the fan vote with my personal vote, with Chris's vote, and we will have the Getting Over Awards for you on Wednesday show. So don't forget, make sure you finish listening to this episode. Hit up those awards. We'll be back with that on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, we will wrap up 2020 with our normal NXT and AEW Dynamite show, which obviously this week is going to take on a different form, but not going to know exactly what that's going to be until we see what happens on Wednesday night. As for now, what's most important is to continue with this show. And the way we do that on Tuesdays is by jumping into the main event. event. Now, Chris, I actually originally had a five-part main event. Like I said, (laughs) this was legitimately a loaded week. So we're going to go with three. I narrowed it down. And then we're going to kind of move into everything else. But we're going to have to go relatively quickly because I think the way I wrote this out, the way I, I bullet pointed um, my notes, this could actually be a three hour show. We're not going to do that. Uh, I don't have the time, nor do I think you guys want to listen to a pay-per-view length edition of getting over. So I want to get into it. Uh, we'll start with the universal championship, Roman Reigns against Kevin Owens in a steel cage match. These guys fighting basically in back-to-back weeks. There were no shortage of big spots from the bell as WWE tried to get the crossover NFL audience to basically stick on screen. Owens hit a frog splash, pop-up powerbomb, and an avalanche fisherman's buster for a trio of long two counts. Reigns got one with a Superman punch. Owens hit a stunner for a 2.9, leaving him very frustrated. Owens pushed Reigns off the top rope, got caught with knees on a flying senton, and Reigns' ensuing spear only delivered a 2.5, which equally shocked him. Owens slammed Reigns into the door to knock him out and tried to escape. It was at that point. Jey Uso tried to slam the door into Owens' head, He dodged it, knocked Uso out with the door. Reigns dragged Owens back inside, countered the pop-up powerbomb with a Superman punch, but Owens again dodged the spear as Reigns flew into the cage. 
So Owens got to hit a second stunner, couldn't capitalize. Uso grabbed his arm through the chain link and handcuffed him just far enough away that Owens could not angle his body out of the door and get feet on the floor. Reigns slowly stepped through the ropes, methodically looking at Owens, calling him a bitch. He then sat on the steps, mocked Owens. They trash talked a little bit. I thought this was a pay-per-view quality match with a pretty good finish. I thought the handcuff spot was a bit tough to believe because basically Uso needed to get both arms through the links with the handcuffs. And then Owens had to put his arm in the exact right spot because there's no way to like move your arms around to like, you know, get him. Uh, So I thought that was a little bit tough to believe, but I get why they wanted the escape finish. I get why they did it that way. Owens got put over really strong in this match with all of the kickouts, but ultimately nothing that he had from an offensive standpoint was able to put Reigns away. So it does kind of feel like we're going to get a third match, but at the same time, you think he's been outsmarted twice. He's lost twice. Why are they going to keep going? So it's a good, it's, I just am really not exactly sure what they're going to do, but as of right now, I kind of believe we're headed for a third match at Royal Rumble. Yeah, I, I probably, I, I mean, all along, I thought it was going to be Daniel Bryan and, and the fear you have is that Kevin Owens, and, you know, loses three matches to, exactly. to Roman. And then, and then what does that do for him? I, you know, I, I think he has come he has looked stronger through this whole thing compared to when it started, but I think there's a limit to how many times you can look good in a loss. So I don't know. I, I don't really know where it's going to go. The match was great. I actually didn't think about the physics of the handcuff thing until you mentioned it. So I guess just in the moment, it didn't bother me. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think there, there's, some way, if it's not going to be Owens, you have to figure out some way to transition him into something else that doesn't look like him, you know, tucking his tail between his legs. And, that, and that's a tough part because, yeah. you know, well, as we'll talk about next, another title changed hands, uh, the di- heel face dynamics of that make it difficult for Owens to just move on to another title. Um, Daniel Bryan, we're also going to talk about later what happened in his match and what he said afterward. So, now all of these things have happened where you're kind of sitting there like rubbing your chin and you're like, well, what the hell is Reigns going to do next? And what the hell is Owens going to do next? Because right. there's five weeks into the pay-per-view, right? Right. That's so, that, that's why I'm not sure. That's why, you know, the Drew McIntyre thing, they set it up over a couple of weeks. Roman still has more time to catch up. I I don't know. But but I, I, but I they've done it. It's, it. it's been good. You know, I this is a situation where I have faith that they will, that they know what they're doing with Roman. Uh, that I agree. You know, in general, Reigns, Owens, they're usually booked very well. So whatever they're going to do going forward will be interesting. But I just am curious if they do stick with it. How the hell do they book five more weeks of the same exact feud to get to a rematch? Or does Owens get a third match on SmackDown like two Fridays from now? And then they build a totally brand new feud for a Royal Rumble. That is possible as well. Now we'll go move over to the second major title on SmackDown. I mean, not counting the women's championship, of course. We had the Intercontinental title on the line, Sami Zayn defending against Big E in a lumberjack match. Now, off the top, I'm going to start with the negatives. I was disappointed that this only got about like 14, 15 minutes of TV time, given that it was the main event and potentially a big moment. I also hate a lumberjack stipulation for a match where we 
may expect, given all the other circumstances, a title change. Biggie got attacked by the Lumberjacks a couple times early, with Zane hitting a tope con giro to take advantage. Biggie hit a few strong suplexes, countered Zane's haluva kick into a uranagi for a near fall. Zane escaped the ring after getting out of the big ending, but the Lumberjacks grabbed him and threw him back inside. Zane gave Biggie a thumb to the eye behind the referee's back, but got caught on the top rope, only to hit Biggie with an avalanche sunset flip powerbomb that was an awesome move. Biggie speared Zane through the ropes to the outside, and the Lumberjacks began brawling as Zane ran away. Apollo Crews caught Zane at the top of the ramp, which was a nice touch, given that Crews was the first one to suffer at the hands of Sami Zayn with all of his antics to kind of get out of matches. The faces then literally carried the champion on their shoulders all the way back into the ring. Biggie caught Zayn with a belly-to-belly suplex and hit the big ending for the clean one-two-three to become the new Intercontinental Champion. Biggie got really hype after the match, celebrating with all the faces and Corey Graves, who supported him, despite, by the way, being a heel commentator. So I like that touch as well. Morning Woods is what Xavier calls it. So now I mentioned the negatives at the beginning. I'll get to the positives. Big E just won his first singles title in seven years. And he did it in the main event on Fox with a ton of confetti, which you don't always get for title wins on TV. It was reminiscent of Rhea Ripley winning the NXT Women's Championship in the final show of 2019 in that it was made a big deal on purpose. It's supposed to be a moment. Big E winning that title was supposed to be a moment. Hopefully, this is just the start of a lot of great things to come for him. But the the negative that I have on the entire thing is that WWE felt it was necessary to almost cool down the moment a little bit by having him win in a way that Sami Zayn will now have an excuse for next week. And I know you want to keep Zane having excuses and being a chicken shit heel, but it would have been much more impactful for me if Biggie won this title clean in a one-on-one match, maybe overcame some of Zane's antics, and then the roster emptied, the locker room emptied, the roster ran down to the ring, propped Biggie on their shoulders and celebrated afterward. Instead, it just felt very manufactured and it gave Zane an out that he didn't really need and it kind of put a little ding on Biggie's win that was unnecessary. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm wrong. You'll tell me right now. But that's how I felt watching it. It could have been a 10 out of 10 moment. Instead, it felt like it was like a, I don't know, seven and a half, eight out of 10 moment. So with with the the lumberjack part of this, this is this is the thing I mentioned last week or a few weeks ago is that with Sami Zayn basically making it canon that he can sneak back into the ring after a 10 count to, at the end of a 10 count to get the victory. This is what people should try all the time. So naturally, I think the only way to get around that was the lumberjack match. You know, you had to have people who were going to keep him from running away, who were going to get him and his opponent in the ring. Um, you know, sure. You can say things about the various actions of the lumberjacks, but the, the stipulation made sense in the storyline. So I, I was so I was fine with that. I, I think overall I thought this was fine. Like I said, I didn't have an, an issue with the, the the stipulation. And you know, an, another thing we said a few weeks ago was they need to start pulling the trigger here on Big E. If if he's gonna be a big thing, like this has to happen now. And here we are, Christmas Day, he's getting the confetti, he's getting the, right. the locker room celebrating him. 
that that that's that's the sign that you know we're doing this. So overall, I thought it was really good. Would I've loved more? Could it have been better? Sure, but but I, I think they executed what they needed to execute, and they did it in a way that I think made sense in the storyline. I think the circumstances of him winning, the timing, what it may mean going forward, potentially even for WrestleMania, all of that was very good. So there's no complaints there, and the match was entertaining. It was a good main event. So same thing. I just I think about like how can you do it quote unquote right or quote unquote best? And I didn't feel that this was executed in the best possible way they could have, which when you're dealing with Big E and you're dealing with a fan base of his that has been waiting for him to get this type of success as a singles competitor for such a long time, it kind of, you're like, oh man, I I just wish, I wish it was perfect. You know, like Kofi, Kofi Kingston's WWE title win was perfect. The match was perfect. The way they booked it, everything. It was great. This, so, you're kind of like, uh, it was almost there, right? It was. It's painful that it's not perfect, if that makes sense. Well, part of me was like, oh man, he should he should be winning this on a on a pay per view, not a Christmas night thing. Although the numbers ended up being good, partly because of the NFL and everything. Yeah, really so good. That, that ended up being fine. But then you know, then you realize he's not going to get the confetti. He's not going to get the everybody holding him up if it's not the main event. So I actually Correct. think this did make more sense to do it on a SmackDown like this. Um, to give him that moment. So I, I thought that I thought that that made it feel bigger than maybe I thought it would have. Put your meat on my meat, man. Gently now. You're good, you're good Gen- please, oh, gently, yeah, yeah. gently. Hey, I'm, I'm delicate. That's the most important thing. We got a big meaty man with a big title before the end of the year. Okay, let's move on to Raw and the big storyline that actually opened the show. Very similar to how SmackDown operated. The, the biggest storyline began the show, and then you didn't really hear much about it going forward. Drew McIntyre's friendship triangle reached a boiling point. McIntyre opened the show talking about his dominant year, defending the title next week against one of his friends on Legends Raw. Sheamus and Keith Lee came out in order, getting in McIntyre's head and arguing with each other. McIntyre called for the match to start, so Sheamus then blindsided Lee with two bro kicks before the ref got down. Now, the Sheamus-Keith Lee match was previously announced, um, just I think earlier on Monday as happening on the show. So you did know that we were getting it. We did know it was a number one contendership. We'll talk a little bit of in a moment about how that's a weird booking considering what else happened on the show. Uh, but we had Keith Lee and Sheamus. They fought. Sheamus did a very rare top rope move with an ax handle to the outside. He tried it again inside the ring and Lee countered it with the pounce, which was pretty cool. Lee moved a lot slower than usual during the match. Made me think he might be injured or something, but clearly he wasn't because he he was still wrestling. It seemed like at 100%, but it was a very slow match at the beginning, which I know he's a bigger guy. It's not always the case with him. Maybe it's because it was him and Sheamus, and that's just how it worked with them together. He dodged a bro kick, countered it with a huge cross body off the ropes. Uh, Sheamus caught Lee for an impressive white noise for a guy his size, really impressive, began trash talking but Lee kept his wrist control after that move, slammed Sheamus's chest, and then hit the spirit bomb kind of out of nowhere for a clean one, two, three. Lee then stared down McIntyre a bit after the match at ringside, and then later in the show, McIntyre cut a great promo, building up Lee, saying that he stepped up in a big way, deserves the title opportunity, and can beat any single wrestler in WWE except him. That's the type of promo 
I like from a champion, whether a heel, whether a face, they do it all the time very well in AEW actually, where you don't just tear down your opponent because they're your opponent. You build them up and say, this guy is great. Paul Heyman actually does this better than anyone. Yep. You say, this guy is great. He's as great of a challenger as, as I could ever have, but I'm going to beat him. That That's how you cut those types of promos. So Lee winning the number one contendership, obviously the right decision to get this title shot, especially if WWE is planning, and we don't know what they're planning, planning to save Sheamus or a triple threat for Royal Rumble or further down the line. The match was strong, as I said, albeit a little slow. And Sheamus has now had a couple of banger matches in the last month. He had one with Riddle previously. He's actually becoming quite valuable in a Dolph Ziggler-like role where he's able to put all these other people over now that he's back as a single. So I loved the match. It was very entertaining. They nailed the booking. Keith Lee got over clean. So much about him getting buried. And now in a calendar year, uh, and really starting 2021, Keith Lee won a number one contendership for the NXT title, won the NXT title, ends the year winning a number one contendership for the WWE title. And I don't think he's going to win the title next week on Raw, but I don't think it's impossible either, Chris. Uh, I, I do, but that doesn't take away from any of it. This, this is This is exactly the kind of thing they needed to do with a long time off between pay-per-views. Give us a mini a mini championship feud and and you know i think back to when they first went back to the brand split and and they the the brands didn't have a pay-per-view every month like sometimes what you know sometimes smackdown would go six weeks before a pay-per-view and they would have little storylines that took up two three weeks that would eventually turn into something else but you could have a championship match you could have a uh james ellsworth versus aj styles type of thing and 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 it it would work and it'd be fine. And this isn't that level, but the idea of, yeah, let's do this thing for a couple of weeks. Let's give them a title shot. You know, we don't need to save this for a pay-per-view then give us three weeks of building up by repeating the same thing. So I'm excited for this. I love the booking. I love the, the promos at the beginning, how they're, they're both Drew's friend, but they're not friends with each other. Everybody's kind of been in a relationship like that, just with friends when, when someone's friends from another section of their life come together and you don't quite click it's it's i i like it the promos were good the match was good uh drew was good afterward building them up i loved everything about this and look they opened anytime you're going to open raw with a couple of big meaty men slapping freaking meat big meaty men slapping meat <laughs> that's what i want to see and they gave it to us i'm excited about how it's going to move forward what do you think the booking is going to be going forward my expectation I'll kind of lay it out there and then you can counter or or agree if you want. Uh, my expectation is we do not get a squeaky clean finish on Raw next week. I know that's not really going out on a limb with WWE, uh, but we did get one, obviously, in the number one contendership. I think it's going to be something like late in the match. Lee's getting up on McIntyre. Maybe he throws him into the steel steps or is kind of brutalizing him on the outside, does something with the announce table. Sheamus comes down to kind of almost intimidate Keith Lee. And while he's there, he distracts him a little bit. Maybe Drew yells at him for getting involved and saying, I can handle it type of deal. And ultimately that leads to like a distraction for Lee. McIntyre is able to hit him with the Claymore. He gets the win. Then you come up the next week, Lee's pissed. Sheamus, you know, says he deserves a title shot since Lee got one. And somehow they figure out a way 
to go with a triple threat match for the title at the Royal Rumble. That would be both good and bad if that's the direction they go. It takes Keith Lee out of the Royal Rumble match, which is something he should be in. The other direction they can go is that there's not a triple threat and it ends up being McIntyre versus Sheamus, the Royal Rumble. But I do think we're headed in the direction with McIntyre staying in this individual storyline with these particular guys. Now, there's other stuff that happened on Raw that we can talk about a little bit later on the show that could develop and kind of interfere with those plans or or those thoughts for me. But if it stays kind of clean in that way and and straightforward, that's the direction I think they're going to go in. Yeah, I I think so too. You know, we've been wondering if Sheamus could betray Drew at some point to set up a Royal Rumble match, considering he's not in a feud with a heel. That's probably not going to happen, but... um, yeah, whether it's a triple threat, whether it's a Sheamus, I'm not sure. I think I, I think they'll continue to build off of this as opposed to going in a different direction before the Rumble. So, um, yeah, it, yeah, it should be pretty good. I think so as well. So that was our main event. We actually got through it pretty quick, but we do have a lot of show left to talk through. And some of the things I was mentioning there, AJ Styles, The Miz, we will talk about a bit later in the show. So, you know, keep in, in mind what we talked about with Keith Lee and with Drew McIntyre and Sheamus. But don't forget AJ Styles and The Miz both may still be involved in this somehow, and that is something that we'll address a little bit later. But let's move over to the main event of Raw, since we talked about already the opening and main event of SmackDown. Uh, You know, earlier in the show, we had Randy Orton visiting Alexa's playground. Bliss said The Fiend built her playground, but she hasn't seen him since the Inferno match. She guessed he might return for Legends Night. City idolizes Hulk Hogan, which I thought was funny. Uh, Bliss tried to bring Orton down to the ring, but he didn't show up. And then suddenly the Firefly Funhouse music hits and Orton cuts a promo from inside the Funhouse. He boots Huskus the pig right in the face, uh, then throws Mercy into Abby. And I legitimately laughed out loud. I thought it was freaking hysterical. From there, he ripped Ramblin' Rabbit's head off, saying there was no way that The Fiend comes back. But if he does, he'll have nothing left. Bliss challenged Orton in the ring, and he accepted. I loved every part of this entire thing, from Bliss's opening to Orton's promo. I thought it was expert character work for both of them. I know you had a problem with this, which I'll let you get to in a second. But first, I need to say, this opening segment kind of deal with Orton and Alexa Bliss? Such good shit. Yeah, no, no, I don't have any problems with the execution. Um... It's something else that happened later. Uh, no, this was great. And and Randy, you know, I, I keep saying I keep saying every week, I think Alexa Bliss is maybe one of the best actors on the show in terms of getting into a character. She continues to knock it out of the park with what she's doing. But Randy seems really into this too. Like he really seems to be enjoying this storyline and doing these different things. And when Alexa challenges him to a match, you're like, huh? And then he kind of has the same reaction. It's just like, all right, let's do this. Don't know what's going to happen. Let's just, he's like, you can just kind of tell, you get the sense from his face that he's like, I don't know where this is going, but this is getting weird and I like it. <laughs> and, 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 um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess we'll find out if the Firefly Funhouse characters are alive or not. I, I think it generally worked that that kind of pushed her over the edge and her confidence kind of went away because, now she's kind of losing everything in this universe. Uh, so, yeah, I really liked it. But your issue was? 
Well, my issue was I prompted you to. I prompted. Yeah, no, I actually, I normally Adam and I don't like text each other during the show uh, because we just we save our reactions live for the podcast. But they once again, this thing ends, and instead of going to commercial and letting it breathe, they go to a Charlotte video package for the second week in a row, and then they go into a whole beginning of a, a match and. I get it. It was the top of the hour. So you, your top of the hour segment isn't five minutes or whatever it was. But like, you, you got to let this moment <laughs> breathe. And frankly, I've come around on the idea that commentary should basically just not talk during these segments. They can say something when they come back to commercial, but like they, they, they can't figure it out. Sometimes they say things quietly. Sometimes they try to react. It's just it's not. I, I think it would be better. Actually, hold on. I had this in my notes. Um, it would be better if it was just dead silence. I, I think they need to take out the crowd reaction too, because it was actually kind of hard to hear Randy when he was in the Firefly Funhouse. But I, I think this this is supposed to be kind of eerie. I don't want it to feel like I'm in a normal wrestling situation. So I think it should just be silence. Take out the crowd noise. Take out commentary. It ends. You go to commercial. You come back, commentary saying, not really sure what happened every week. This gets weird, but we got to move on. Let's get into Charlotte. Just just let this moment feel special and not part of a scripted wrestling show. It's very frustrating to once again see them do this and then just go into a Charlotte video video package like we just like what we just saw wasn't that big of a deal. I was far less offended or bothered, really is the better word, this week than I was last week. Last week, I thought it was atrocious. Yes. This week, if you noticed, they went to black for like five seconds. Yeah. Then came back on commentary and then kind of moved it forward. So I didn't think it was as bad, but in general, these segments should end with going to black and then going to commercial. It just, it's how it should be. Or going to black and then just Tom Phillips on screen saying, I don't know what to make of that, folks, but we do need to continue. Yeah. And then going into Charlotte Flair. Just make it simple. Like, I don't need commentary to kind of break down but not break down what I just saw. It's creepy. It's weird. You know, we can move past it. Now, in the final segment of the show, Orton met Bliss in the ring and demanded to know where the Fiend was hiding. She said it's not about him. It's about her. She opened a present to reveal gas and matches she dared Orton to use it to burn her with, even helping him by pouring some of it out. He refused, arms crossed in the corner. Bliss called him a coward and a little bitch, then poured gas all over herself as Orton seethed. Orton said he's capable of doing it, but trying to process why she wants it, if he should do it. But as he started to get near her with a match in his hand, the light shut off, kind of like they do for when the Fiend shows up. So you're thinking, okay, we might get the Fiend now. Instead, the lights never turn back on. Randy Orton just lights a match and the camera's solely on him and the match. And he looked pretty demonic doing it, but the match started burning down and then they just took Raw off the air. And Chris, man, <laughs> I was pissed because the segment and the storyline is good. And the segment was actually okay. But I can't get over how many times I say the same thing on this damn show. The cliffhangers that they try to do and try to give us on Raw are worse and worse every single week. 
They're so incredibly stupid. Zero point zero. They just can't figure out how to do these things right. What the hell was the point of that? How do you progress from that moment or explain what happened there next week? Did Bliss disappear? Did the Fiend show up? Did Orton just stand there until the match burned his fingers? Did he drop the match and burn her alive? This is not something that's going to make me tune in next week because I know there's no way they can actually resolve it. All they needed to do was have him blow out the match, have the lights turn back on, and have him hit her with the RKO. Or at any point in the entire thing, they could have had him light the match, walk over to her, blow it out, hit the RKO on her. That is impactful. That's something where you're saying, holy shit, I can't believe Randy Orton just hit Alexa Bliss with an RKO to end Raw. That's crazy. Instead, they do this thing where it's like, well, he didn't light her on fire, but he also may have been. And next week, you're just going to see Alexa Bliss alive and you're never going to know what ended up happening. So I thought this was a total piece of shit finish. The final 15 seconds of Raw wraps absolutely horrible. You can yourself too. Yeah, they can go do that to themselves because <laughs> it was a great show. It was a great storyline with Orton and Bliss. It was a pretty good final segment, but the last 15 seconds absolutely ruined it. It's like when you're eating like a, a bunch of French fries, right? And, and they're delicious, but then the, you're not looking at them. And the last one's that crinkled up brown one. And you put that in your mouth and you start chewing it. And you're like, oh, what the hell is this? It's okay if it happens in the middle of the bag of fries that you're eating. But if it's the last fry, you're like, oh, that was a terrible fry eating experience. Well, this was a really damn good of Raw episode of Raw. But that freaking brown fry at the end just killed the entire thing. Did they, I don't watch Raw Talk. Did they address what happened on Raw Talk? At the beginning of Raw Talk, they're like, well, this is going to be an interesting show. And then they <laughs> didn't mention it. because what? Because exactly what I just said. What are you going to say? Well, and this goes back to, we, we talked about this before, is you can't, like, whatever happened, happened. You can't act like it didn't happen or we don't know what happened because everybody who's there filming it knows what happened. And so you, like, if it's on Raw Talk, they show what happened. Like, you, you can't hold this, you know, like, in terms of kayfabe, what happened. We, we, we should know what happened. Commentary didn't go away they didn't disappear. Why isn't Tom Phillips tweeting what happened since we didn't get to see it? Hey, sorry, Raw went off the air. Here's what happened. Like, you can't, this isn't 1997 and you can't like hold it for a week because, you know, Tony Schiavone was telling us we're running out of time. There's unlimited time in the digital world. They have their YouTube channel. They have Raw Talk right after. You, you just, that type of cliffhanger just doesn't work in this day and age. And it, it it's kind of funny because I was complaining that they were not, like just going to commercial with this. And then they do like right in the middle of the climax of the moment. And it goes right into a Chrisley commercial. Like it didn't, it didn't even fade to black. It just went straight to Chrisley commercial. And I was just like, it was like a whiplash. Like what the heck is going on here? And yeah, no, it was really good up until that last 10 seconds. I was, un I was uncomfortable watching Alexa bliss pour the, fake gasoline on herself, just like drenching herself. I, and like Randy was like a little freaked out by it too. Like, like he was just, he was selling it well. I thought it was a great segment up until the end 
And it's one of those situations where you you just you you booked yourself into the situation and you can't you how are you going to get out of it? And Correct. Don't book the moment if you can't give me a conclusion. That, yep. that you you nailed it precisely right there. If you are going to do that, then you do one of two things. You have him drop the freaking match or you have him blow out the match. And again, I, I gave you a booking. It's very easy, right? Like he he, he just RKO'd uh, Beth Phoenix earlier this year, right? So why can't you have him RKO Alexa Bliss? You most certainly can. 100%. And honestly, the way I would have done it, I would have had Randy be like a little too freaked out and just like back out. You could do that too. Cause, cause you could do, you, yeah, you could like, do that and yeah. then have, and then have bliss next week kind of do the same thing, have him RK over her next week. And then the fiend shows up. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And he put, put you know, picks her up and puts her in, in his arms or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So the, Randy and Alexa are doing too good of work. Correct. To be, correct. to be put in a situation like that. And, and, and I also didn't like that the final camera shot was like directly in front of Randy like that was you just, couldn't see her. You didn't know if she was still it, there. It got weirdly cinematic at the last moment. Yeah. I like it, it was one of those when WWE does those does those pranks or they flip a truck and you can tell there's like right the camera just goes to a spot where we haven't been before, so you know they like pause and change things. There was no need to do that. Like if anything, just give us the regular hard cam close up on Randy and then go to I don't know. Like I didn't they, like they, they, didn't they like definitely it at all, but that that adding that onto it was just strange. Yeah, they definitely didn't need to do it that way. I mean, there was just so many other ways they could have done. Did you like my analogy with the brown French fry or no? I, I didn't know where it was going. Um, I thought it was okay. All right. I, I mean, look, it was, it was <laughs> extemporaneous speaking is not the easiest thing. I thought I was it was. Like, I, thought I, don't, it was I, don't, I don't know where this is going to go. I, but I'm have not. you experienced that? Where like you're eating something? It can be potato chips. It can be really anything. And you're like, a bunch of these are really good M and M's. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you get one, and it's just like. The hell is this? You get like, you get like the Skittle that's not chewy. It's like a rock. right anything like that, and th- that's what this was. It was like, man, I'm really enjoying this this long this huge bag of chips or, or, or French fries. These are all delicious, and it's like, oh, what the hell is this? And it was literally the last one that I ate. So it just left that taste in your mouth where you're like, yeah. oh man, I need to, I need to have a sip of Coke or water or whatever yeah. and get that get that washed away. That's what this is. This my rant on it here was that sip of Coca Cola that kind of you know moves it out of out of your off your tongue and out of your mouth. All right, enough of that. Uh, Daniel Bryan uh, faced Jay Uso on SmackDown. So as Bryan made his entrance, uh, Uso attacked him from behind. Bryan had to agree then to start the match as because he was injured and stuff. Uh, Uso was dominant throughout, countered Bryan's running knee with a super kick. However, he couldn't take advantage of a Samoan splash due to selling an injured knee. They brawled on the canvas with Uso headbutting Bryan and the referee nearly, nearly calling a knockout. I thought that was a really cool spot. Brian ducked under a super kick and hit the running knee for the win in a nice callback spot to the opposite of that happening early in the match. So no surprise whatsoever that this was a banger with these two battling. It was the least important match of the night on that SmackDown, but still totally delivered. Jey Uso, he got included on our list for breakout wrestler of 2020, and I think he deserves that. Daniel Bryan, obviously everyone he wrestles, gets a chance to put people over um, and does even in wins. This was just a great match top to bottom. Yeah, no, I mean, it's exactly what I expected these guys to, to tear it down. And, and they did it. Th- I mean, this is what's kind of made me figure for a while. They were 
saving Daniel Bryan to move up to fight Roman for, for Royal Rumble. I, that's probably still what they do. Um, it's not. It's not what's next because after the match, Bryan was asked what's next on his list to achieve. And he said he's never won a battle royal. He's never won the Royal Rumble. So he's the first entrant into oh, the 2021 event. I Sammy missed that. Z- Sami Zayn came in, interrupted him, blamed Brian for a bunch of stuff, and said karma would ensure he doesn't win the Rumble. This was an interesting segment because they seem to be setting up a long-term storyline of Brian not winning the Rumble, potentially due to Sami Zayn, and then having a feud going on from there. But... Zayn just lost the Intercontinental title. So then you're not setting that match up potentially for WrestleMania. Potentially Zayn could be Brian's feud within the Rumble match itself. We were previously talking about Brian facing Reigns at the Rumble or winning the Rumble and going on to fight Reigns at WrestleMania. So maybe that's the direction they're going to go with Brian actually winning the Royal Rumble and facing Roman Reigns at WrestleMania. That would pay off all of the hints of a Roman Reigns-Daniel Bryan feud that we didn't really get. And it pays off that he beat Jey Uso, so that's already in the bag. Now he only has to focus on Roman Reigns. But I have to say, with them being so blatant, with Bryan front and center as the number one entrant, it feels to me like it's a swerve and that he's not going to win. So I don't know exactly what they're doing, but it's so strange. We were just talking about where Roman Reigns goes from here. It seemed like he was set up to have Daniel Bryan as his challenger at the Royal Rumble, especially now that he's overcome Jey Uso. But Brian entered into the Royal Rumble match. So I just don't know what they're going to do here. I missed that. Thanks for the heads up. On yeah. That. Yeah, I, I don't. Um, yeah, I don't know then. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it seemed to be. You know, we've been wondering what Roman's going to do at WrestleMania, if it's not going to be The Rock. We wondered if it could be Big E. We wondered if they could do a Drew Roman thing again, run back Survivor Series since we loved it so much. Um, I don't know. I guess I guess it's all kind of on the table. I'm not really sure. It's kind of weird to have Dan O'Brien seemingly exit this storyline with a win over Jay, uh, but maybe 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 the maybe they're changing on the fly the things that they're kind of planning. I don't know. Me neither. Now, I want to move back over to Raw, and I'm actually going to surprise you uh, with a segment that we're talking about pretty high in this podcast, and it's the Ricochet against Mustafa Ali, sorry, Mustafa Ali match. I loved that they aired the Raw Talk promo by Ricochet, which was not only good, but a strong part of his character development. More of that, please. Ali also cut a good taped promo ahead of the match, no surprise coming from him. He was also dressed, uh, did you notice this? He was dressed like Seth Rollins during the match. I thought that was weird. Um, did, did you like see the ring gear and kind of think that or no? No, well, I, did, I guess I, I can't even picture. Was he wearing pants again? He was wearing pants. He had like the top that's like a vest and it's like uh, shiny black with like the, the ribs area outlined, like the, the six pack area outlined. It was just a Seth Rollins. It looked like Seth Rollins like shipped him some gear. From from back when he used to run that character. So it was really strange. Um, But I do want to sit here and soak in this match when I talk about it, because most people thought it was great, not just the match, but the storyline. I I did. I saw a lot of other people, though, complaining about it because Ricochet lost and blah, blah, blah. I thought this was truly great wrestling booking, like not WWE, not AEW, NXT, any wrestling company. 
I loved the presentation of this match. You had Retribution distract the referee early and throw Ricochet into the barricade. Ali hit him with a splash from the top rope outside. I remember being at an ECW show back in whoever, who the hell knows when it was. Oh, that's, um, that's, pretty, that's a great flex right there. Well, I remember being at an ECW show uh, back in when I was in high school, I guess. And Sabu hit a top rope splash to the outside on whoever, Sandman, doesn't, I don't even remember. But the crowd went, holy shit, and please don't die, and like all of those types of chants for that moment. That's how crazy and insane doing that move is. And they just casually did it in a Ricochet Mustafa Ali match. I just thought that was personally very interesting. Um, Ali then hit an elevated backstabber. Ricochet answered with a backflip into a gut wrench German suplex. Ricochet also hit a discus clothesline and then the kickback for the win, or it would have been for the win, but Rick Retribution pulled Ali out before the three count. Ricochet then hit an Escalera Tornado DDT on T-Bar in a crazy spot. Looked like he broke his freaking neck. Then he drop kicked Ali into the ring post off the ring apron before hitting another Tornado DDT onto Mace off the ring apron. Commentary did a great job building the match, building the finish, and building Ricochet. Ricochet hit a shooting star press, but it was countered with double knees, and then Ali locked in the Koji clutch for the win. Wow, wow, wow. After the match, Ali gave Ricochet a chance at a new beginning and again offered that he join Retribution. Ricochet baited Ali into thinking he might join, surprised him instead with the recoil as Retribution swarmed the ring and Ricochet dipped out. I have zero complaints. 0.0 complaints about this match, the booking. They nailed the storytelling. Great babyface booking. Ali needed the win more than Ricochet did because he is the leader of a faction and he got the win. They reached backwards into the feud. The match was great. Could it have been another 10 minutes? Of course it could have been. And the post-match reasonably kept the storyline going without a beatdown. This was a big win on the show and especially, in my opinion, for Ricochet long-term. And I know you may be listening to me break that down, and Chris, you may be included in this group, and say, why is the Silver King so excited over a low-card match booking? Well, it was a great match, and I think that it had greater you know, tentacles almost reaching out into the future for both of these guys than just the result itself showed. Now, I could be wrong. And you know what? There have been numerous times, especially in WWE, where I look at a match and something happens and I say, that's going to really matter later on down the line and that's going to develop into something. And this is the beginning of this person becoming a star. I don't know whether any of that is going to be true here. But I think this was a first step into Ricochet regaining the presence and the focus that he had both in kayfabe and in reality, coming out of that loss to Brock Lesnar at Super Showdown. 2020 was a shit year for this guy. Again, both in kayfabe and in reality. And it seems to me like they not only have booked this with a plan, but the plan is to get Ricochet over again and build him up. I was very enthusiastic, as you can tell, by this match, by the booking, and really even by the result, despite Ali winning. Yeah, you are uh, you are all over this. I, I thought into it was, it. Um, I thought it was fine. I, I the only thing I kind of wished that 
they took some more time with it. I, I mean, maybe they've got a longer term plan and we'll see what happens. But I wanted the idea of Ricochet, you know, they continuing to get these offers to join Retribution, continuing to think about it to, to happen over several weeks. I, I mean, th- that that Raw Talk promo was really good. We t- you mentioned it last week, said people should go back and watch it. I'm glad they showed it on Raw this week leading into the match. I just kind of would have loved to drag that out for a few more weeks to make it really feel like maybe he will do this kind of, you know, the Cedric Alexander her business type of deal. Um, but but to kind of bring it up and move past it in a week was it, it, it made me think it wasn't going to happen because it moved so quickly. Um, so I guess that's the only thing I would have changed was maybe figure out a way to drag that part of the storyline into a little bit more. I know we've done Ricochet versus Retribution for a while now. But but that aspect of the story, I think, could have been told over a couple more weeks to really build up the drama of of his decision. I mean, there are so many complaints I can tell you about Rick, uh, not Ricochet, about Retribution. Like I, I, I can say how they were terrorizing the entire show and now you don't see them on TV unless it's their individual match segment. <laughs> right. And there's only involved against one person at a time, despite being a faction. I, I could get into it. Right. And I could tell you all the bad things. But. In this, I just happened to find a lot of positives. And I don't think we normally talk about low card stuff in that way. I thought with the women on Raw that there were a lot of positives there as well that we'll talk about momentarily. But this just happened to hit for me. And you know what? I could very well next week be proven 100% wrong. But I think long-term listeners of this show know that very rarely happens to the Silver King. So we'll see, but it is certainly possible. Uh, Moving back to SmackDown, speaking of women, let's talk about the women's tag team title match, Asuka and Charlotte Flair. I think they're calling themselves the Queens of Tomorrow, maybe, uh, versus Bailey and Carmella versus Sasha Banks and Bianca Belair in an elimination match. It made no sense whatsoever that two non-teams got title opportunities while Riot Squad, with multiple wins recently, was watching backstage. I I just, if you're going to do this match, and we know why they did the match, okay? It was the six best women, either on that show or really on the main roster, probably. Six of the best women. And they were doing a post-NFL SmackDown on a special Christmas episode. They wanted them all involved in a match. I 100% get it. But if you're doing that, maybe don't show the Riot Squad, the team that deserves the actual title match, sitting backstage watching all these other women who don't deserve the opportunity. I just thought that was weird. I also hated that this was a triple threat tag team match, Chris, with only two people legal at a time. That's the wrong way to do a tag team triple threat match. We talk about it. It's the way WWE does them like that all the time. They do them both ways, though. Do they? I I, yes. I always associate this version with WWE. Maybe they no. do the other one, but but they yeah. do. They they've done it both ways. It's just super strange the way they do it, and the elimination rules also seem to come out of nowhere. So despite this featuring, like I said, arguably the six best women on the main roster, it was a really strange setting. As far as the match goes, Oscar kicked out of a Bailey to Bailey early. Belair hit her press vertical suplex for a near fall, fall on Bailey but Flair got caught in a kip-up after a fallaway slam as Belair hit her with the glam slam, which was pretty cool and nice touch. A spinebuster by Belair didn't put Bailey away, 
but Banks' frog splash did, resulting in the first elimination. Belair then used her braid as a rope to drag Banks into the corner so she could make a tag. Awesome spot. Then Belair hit a springboard moonsault on Flair. Both very cool. Asuka got the hot tag, knocked Banks off the ring apron. Bailey distracted Belair, who caught Asuka with a sit-out powerbomb for a 2.5. Bailey taunted Belair from ringside as the champions hit a blind tag, and then a combo codebreaker and natural selection for the win. Despite all of my complaints that I just said at the beginning of this match, it was really good action. It felt unnecessary to have Belair take the fall after losing to Bailey just last week, as she's the one of the six in this match who needs to be built up the most out of anyone. She should have at least gotten the first fall to soften the loss. But other than that, the action was great. It was really entertaining. And again, it was a four-match show. This was one of them. And there was really no drop-off from any of the other matches to this one or going back then into the Intercontinental title match to end the show. Yeah, no, no. The, the match was good. Enjoyed it. It's more just everything else around it that was a little weird. For all the reasons you mentioned, Belair getting pinned. E- even Bailey getting pinned and it coming by Sasha instead of uh, Bianca. If exactly. I, if I have that right. So um, that that's kind of thinking about it in, in a bit of a meta way. But but you know, other than that, great match. Highlighted a lot of really talented women on a show when they were trying to highlight a lot of people with that football audience. So I, I think it... I think it did what it needed to do. I, I guess the reason it, it, to stay on that outside of kayfabe way, the reason they wouldn't put a team like the riot squad in there is because they don't want them to take the loss or, or to take a loss. The same reason, Absolutely. the same reason Biggie wasn't in um, whatever that match was a while back that big survivor series match. Yeah. Cause they, they, were, they swept them. That's what yeah, Ross. Swept yeah. Them so they didn't, so they want to keep them out of it. But if that's the case, maybe just don't acknowledge the riot squad. You know, I, I mean, that's maybe, what I'm saying. Or maybe yeah. come back next week and be like, hey, why are we in that match? We should be at blah, blah. And maybe they will. Or maybe have them show up after the match and issue a challenge. Yeah. Hey, yeah. You, you just beat you just beat four women who don't team together. Why don't you go face a team that does? Yeah. And, and now and, it, yeah. and that's a hot promo. And, and, you, and now you're building a match. Maybe not for next week, but at some point. Yeah. And, and maybe they'll come back Friday with, with something like that. But uh, yeah, that was just kind of a thought I had too. It just feels to me like they're trying not to do much with the women's titles or especially the tag team titles because we're going to have the women's Royal Rumble and they want everyone involved in that match. So usually when that happens, they don't really push the women's feuds hard because there's only so many women on the roster. You know, it is still a smaller division. But again, if Belair had gotten the first fall, then she would have gotten a win over Bailey and could have held that over her head for another for a rematch with her where she already lost to her as a single. It would have made all the sense in the world. It just didn't make sense for Banks to beat Bailey in that moment. So I don't know why they booked it that way, but they did. Uh, Shayna Baszler over on Raw defeated Dana Brooke in a singles match. Baszler contorted Brooke's arm, snapped it over the ring apron in a really cool spot. She then did another cool spot where she tried to tap Brooke outside the ring and then when, you know roll back in to win by countout, but it didn't work. She also tried to take out Mandy Rose. That didn't work. Back in the ring, Brooke hit a great spinning neck breaker for a near fall, but she missed a splash. Baszler then caught her with a V-trigger, locked in the Kirafuda clutch, and got the win. When Rose checked on Brooke after the match, Baszler locked in another Kirafuda clutch on her. This was a surprisingly good match that I would have loved to see get an extra five minutes. I totally understand why it didn't. Nia Jax was also conspicuous by her absence, considering 
Baszler was there fighting basically another tag team. Brooke has had the chance this year, by the way, to you know get a little bit more TV time, slowly start improving. And I wouldn't be surprised if 2021, we see Dana Brooke improve maybe to the level that Carmella did in 2019 and 2020. Yeah, no, I mean, not a whole lot to say other than, yeah, I thought it was a, it was a good match, a surprisingly good match. And, you know, I think, you know, should it have gone longer? I think the fact that it was really good and makes you wish it had gone longer is, is a good reason uh, not to be because we, you know, it means we're seeing a lot of improvement from Dana and it means we're going to be excited the next time we see her again. Um, and yeah, it was good. Did you think it was weird that Jax wasn't at ringside? I didn't until some people pointed it out on Twitter. Um, and then the fact that Nia was, I was like, oh, maybe Nia is just not at Raw or, or something. But then she was later. So yeah, um, I mean, she yeah, was she was booked she was booked for a match with Charlotte Flair before the show. Flair cut a short promo earlier, noting how Jax took her out of action back in June, which I actually forgot. That's how they wrote Charlotte off. So that was a good job by WWE tying it together, mm-hmm. giving her a singles match for revenge. And then later, Jax cuts a promo to, to the point that we're making here with Baszler by her side. And both of them declared for the Women's Royal Rumble. So I thought it was even more strange that they were not together earlier in the show, especially after that, right? I mean, maybe that's the point. I mean, maybe this is planting seeds of an eventual breakup. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, so then you go to the match. Flair was consistently outsmarting Jax until Jax flung her backward into the bottom turnbuckle. Flair later kicked out of a sit-down powerbomb, but she was about to get the figure four locked in when Baszler interfered with the Kirafuda clutch for the disqualification. So this was nothing special, but I'm starting to wonder if like this is now a two-front feud for the heels where you have Shayna Baszler and Nia Jax still going after Mandy Rose and Dana Brooke, but they're also have problems with Charlotte Flair and Asuka who beat them for the titles. You would think that that might lead to like a triple threat match where maybe Rose and Dana Brooke are able to combine to pin Baszler or Nia Jax or something like that to win the titles without the faces losing them. But then you sit and think, well, why did you take the titles off the heels in the first place if that's the direction you're going to go? Well, and then I, again, I, and, but then again, we talk about SmackDown where you have B, uh, uh, Sasha Banks without a number one contender. You have Asuka on Raw without a number one contender. But the SmackDown, but the women's tag team titles appear to have two number one contenders at least, maybe three, and you're building towards the Royal Rumble. It, it, the women's division, booking wise, has taken two steps up from where it was like two months ago, but it is still really struggling to for them to figure out a way to book all the titles and and keep enough women involved. We saw a lot of different women wrestle over the last few weeks, and that's great, but it just feels like it's not going anywhere. Well, I, I mean, let's remember, Charlotte Charlotte got a tag team title because they just decided to pull Lana out of a match that she had earned and then just right. gave it to Charlotte and gave him the title. So I think and it, it feels like there's like it just it kind of feels like there's a conflict of somebody being like, we need to have Charlotte everywhere again. Uh, and then this is the this is the Absolutely. way kind of, this is kind of the way they're making that happen. And it's kind of messing up other things that they had been building. If you want to have Charlotte everywhere, give her the 24-7 title. That's fine. I, I, she can I, have I, would, I would love that. She can have that. And you know what? That would probably work in retrospect. But I think it would. Keep her, she doesn't need the women's tag team titles. I'm glad she got another 
title reign. And I, this should not count for her world title reign where she's trying to catch her no. father, but I think they're probably going to count it. Uh, I don't know. I, if you, I, if, I think, if, if you wait, well, I don't think they're going to count it. Cause if you're going to, if you're going to count a tag team belt, then you have to add all of Ric Flair's tag team belts, And you should add all of his mid card titles. I, I agree. I don't think they will. Uh, well, 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 we're going to find out and that'll be something interesting. Let me put it this way. I'm glad Charlotte's back. She looks really good in the ring. Her work with Asuka, the friendship, it actually is good. Asuka, whoever she teams with, makes that person more likable, right? So it, it is working in that regard. It just feels like it's unnecessary. Yeah. As a viewer and as and as a uh, critic, both. All right. We had an eight-man tag team match. The Hurt Business against the Positively Hard Bros. <laughs> you got to give credit where it's due, Chris. Okay. Riddle was hysterical. In that opening segment, talking I like about this one. I like, like the the little bronies and positively hard bros, and then he came out. I think after the match on Raw Talk, or, or I think he was just voicing it. He came up with another one that was really funny about New Day. It, it, he Riddle was great. Yeah, no, I, I mean I've I've not been a fan of his promos the last few weeks. This one was short and sweet and to the point. And it was funny. And that's all it needs to be. It doesn't need to be talking about the meaning of the universe and all that nonsense he was doing with Agreed. Jeff Hardy last week. Just keep it real short. And, and it worked. This one. Worked. I'll say I'll say last week was his worst. This week was his best. And all the others before it, I thought were good, but you didn't like them. That's, I think, fair to say. As far yeah. as the match, this started really hot with the faces getting over her business, frustrating Bobby Lashley. Riddle was great, both offensively and selling a ton of moves. Kofi Kingston hit a suicide dive out of the ring as Cedric Alexander didn't realize that Xavier Woods was legal. So Woods hit the discus lariat and Hardy hit the swanton bomb, but Lashley interfered for a minute or so. There were no rules whatsoever. It's it's a little bit more acceptable in an eight-man match than it is in a regular tag team match. Rich Knox, I'm talking to you, Uh, but it still was a little chaotic. Hardy hit Shelton Benjamin with a twist of fate. Uh, blocked a Lashley spear, but got caught in the hurt lock once again to eat the loss. The faces got over after the match with Riddle hitting Lashley with the final flash. I thought there was great action here. It was a lot of fun for an eight-man. This is the second or third match in a row that was a six-man or an eight-man tag in WWE. That's been great. It all started with that Pat Patterson Memorial match. They did another, I think, last week or, or two weeks ago. And then this, all in a row. Really good multi-man tag team action. Yeah, no, no. And I, I think I think you almost need six-man, eight-man tag matches to break down at some point. You know, you know, we talk about the AEW not abiding by tag team rules all the time. I, I think you kind of need that chaos in in, 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 a, in a larger tag match, and it's fine that the ref doesn't call it. Because, because what's the referee going to do? He can't disqualify everyone. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So... Uh, I, I thought it was fine, and yeah, it, it was it was a fun match. Needed it was what it needed to be. Again, we get the hurt business beating a uh, a team of uh, an, another team, whether it was the the Retribution or I think they beat this they beat the Survivor Series Raw team as well. They I did, think. they did. So yep. uh, yeah, this is good. It's good when factions beat groups that are not uh, connected. That's Wait, how it I- should always be. I actually think Retribution may have beaten the Survivor Series Raw team. Was that what happened? Maybe it was that one. Okay. I think I, that, I, I don't, I don't remember. You might but, be right. I think you might be right. Yeah. But, but, but her business beat Retribution and yeah, yeah. So, yes. So, and, her, and her business continues to be strong. That's what's yes. important. 
Yes, yes. And, and that's good. I want them to be strong as a team. If you have a team, they have to be, they can lose singles matches, but when they're a team, they need to win. That's the whole point of having a team. Now, before the match, Lashley declared for the Royal Rumble, which I thought was super weird as the United States champion who has barely defended the title. I have to keep harping on this every week. You have Lashley in this match beating Hardy for the second time with a hurt lock, which you would think would lead to Hardy continuing, continuously being pissed off and angry and wanting a title match against the United States champion. Then you have Riddle at the end of the match get over on Lashley again, which you also would think would lead to a title match with Riddle saying, hey, dude, I've given you a lot of grief, MVP hating Riddle. They keep telling this story, but we can't get a damn US title match or a feud. So what the hell is going on with this title? Why do they refuse to book Lashley as the United States champion? It doesn't make any sense. It seems yeah. right now he has two challengers in those two. We mentioned previously about all those qualifying matches. It looked like Keith Lee was being set up as a challenger, but they refuse to let anyone actually challenge him. He needs to lose the title at this point. I don't get what's happening. Just put, have him do a U.S. Open challenge and beat nobody's. I don't care. Like they, they address this on like two pay-per-views ago on the pre-show. They mentioned that Lashley hasn't defended the title and he that they didn't think there were any worthy challenges to him. It this is this might be the one of the most nonsensical things WWE is doing. WWE is doing. I guess they're just thinking they don't have enough time to do it. I don't. I don't know. You. It would they have be three. The, they have a three-hour show weekly. They have. Enough it time. would be the easiest thing in the world to just have him beat up somebody in five to ten minutes every three weeks, every week, whatever, and it would make him look strong. It would make her business look stronger. They're clearly putting a lot into her business. I don't know why you don't. And Lashley is all often the guy I know winning the match in these in these multi-man tags. I guess I guess the reason is that that they want to do these multi-man tags and want to have Lashley win them. But honestly, you could put this guy in five minute matches and still do that. You know, like it's so weird that they, they 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 designed a new title. We love the design of the title. We love what Lashley's doing. We love what her business is doing. Just have them beat some nobodies every couple of weeks. Just have them. It's so weird. It's so weird that they have this title and they that they do nothing with it. They could easily have him, like if they want him to beat Hardy, even if they want him to beat Riddle, all that's fine. Guess who you're not using on that show? Braun Strowman. So you know what you do? At Royal Rumble, you have, over the last couple of months, you have Lashley beat a bunch of people. And then you have him say, there's no one in on this brand, no one in this company that can beat me for this title. You have Braun Strowman beat him for the damn title at Royal Rumble. And now you have Braun Strowman as champion and all these guys trying to go up against him. You have him lose it somehow, you know, just like big men always lose eventually in some you know way where he, they get rolled up or they get distracted, something happens, but you, you transition it out of him and you just start using the damn title again. They, they have so much time on Raw every week. There is no reason that Bobby Lashley, a rejuvenated, strongly built Bobby Lashley, who could be in the main event program on Raw or SmackDown, there's no reason that this guy is holding one of your four main, quote unquote, men's championships and never defending it. He's defended that less than Asuka's defended the Raw Women's Championship. Yeah. It's, it's just ridiculous at this do, point. Do, have him beat, just, just have Adam Pierce just making, like, you Make can matches. have a yeah. title match. It's not that you, you don't have to do a tournament. You don't have to do, it doesn't have to be a long feud. 
the U.S. the U.S. title specifically in WWE over the last handful of years is known for the U.S. title open challenge. So just have him set out an open challenge. Have him beat a Drew Gulak, a Titus O'Neil, a whatever. It doesn't have to be tied into the story. Titus is actually one of the few people he defended against. He's, yeah. He, I, th- I think he's defended the title three times and one of them is against Titus O'Neil. Just, just like, it doesn't have to, it, again, it doesn't have to be a huge thing. You just, you have to defend these titles because it would look better if he wins and it would make her business look better of if course. you do this. Like, the whole idea is that her business has all the gold. They, they, they show off all their titles. But the title won't mean anything if you don't defend it. And and it's just it's it's very strange. Hundred percent. You had AJ Styles defeat Elias in a singles match. Styles interrupted Elias, who was playing guitar for Jackson Riker backstage. I just thought it was so weird that he was like serenading his own follower, like one on one. In like it looked like he was in a dorm room and like they had just gotten high and he was playing guitar for his friend. It was it was such a weird type of thing. But uh, the heels got in a tiff and Styles got mad said he would break Elias's fingers. It sounds silly, but this is the first of two matches on Raw that I loved the way they made them. There's no reason not to just have dudes wrestle different dudes. Yeah. Whether it's heel or face. It doesn't always need to be the same people fighting in singles, tags, and six-mans. Like, if three weeks ago, even though he's involved in a feud with Retribution, you had Ricochet bump into Elias backstage and fight Elias. That's a great match to have. Like, it's not great in that it's going to tear the house down, but it's a totally fine television match, and it's something different. And we got two matches on this show. I mean, there were more than two. There were other things that we hadn't seen before. But these two, this one and the next one I'm going to talk about, were legitimately different. Things that you did not think going into Raw you would end up seeing. And one of them was AJ Styles against Elias. Anyway, as far as the match goes, and you can talk about well, both well, things. Real quick, ahead, I just want ahead. to continue that. Like, Go ahead. One reason AEW sometimes still, still just feels fresh is because a lot they just have a lot of matchups every week that are just two people we haven't seen together, either in a long time or, 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 or ever. And theoretically, that's how this show is supposed to be. We have scheduled matches, and we have them, and sometimes things break down, and, and you adjust from there. We, it, it's it's such a WWE formula to have the same people involved in the same segments week after week after week when it, it's just like, yeah, AJ Styles and Elias bump into each other. They decide to have a match. And that, that's something I'm not sure if it doesn't happen if we don't have six weeks between a pay-per-view. So it, it's, it's like, yeah, I, I had that exact same feeling of, oh, these are two guys I haven't really seen maybe ever or in a long time. This feels fresh. It just, it feels different and and i like that and i just there should be a lot more of that and, and you can you know have a guy interfere or something that ties into the storyline in a greater move but we don't need every segment to just automatically continue the previous story the idea is that this is a right. competition and these things are scheduled and and things break down and stories evolve from there and you can have that person like you're saying attack after the match attack backstage while they're celebrating the win there's so many different ways you know, just confront them and say, oh, great job beating whatever jobber. But, you know, you have me still waiting. I, you know, I can't wait for my title match. There's so many different ways that you can do it. Use your talent. Use these guys on TV, right? Like Elias clearly has nothing else to do right now, even though they should really turn him and Riker into a tag team. So have him go and fight Styles. What's the harm? Even though they're heel and heel, it doesn't matter. As far as the match goes, Elias hit a cool Meteora off the 
tightrope walk thing that The Undertaker used to do. That was pretty cool. Almost scared off Riker during the match. Elias hit drift away and a TKO, but Styles kicked out of both of them super late. Styles eventually chopped Elias down and then hit the phenomenal forearm for the win. I mean, look, AJ Styles just led Elias into a really good match, probably the best match of his entire career on Raw. I thought Elias looked legitimate for the first time. Styles got the win, which was important. And now I'm kind of sitting here thinking like, well, where does this go? Because Styles, he has been a heel, but he's also been kind of a tweener recently. And this being on a tweener in a match against the heel makes me wonder maybe if they're going to start turning him face. But how do you do that if Omos is there? And what do you do about AJ Styles still kind of claiming that he deserves a title match? So I don't know if this was to hold him over. If maybe they are going to go with Drew McIntyre and AJ Styles. We mentioned earlier, you know, we're not sure what they're going to do for Royal Rumble regarding Drew McIntyre. Maybe this is just holding AJ over until we get to that point. But I did find it interesting, unique. And I enjoyed an Elias match for the first time ever. Yeah, that match was fun. With AJ, you know, maybe the bit is him and almost are kind of a, a bit of a comedy team. And, and they can kind of balance that face heel line through that because AJ's really funny with him. And, and he is with, with almost. And I think you tweeted it last night was that when he jumped up to do the chest bump to almost, he almost headbutted him. And it was really kind of highlighted how good of a vertical leap uh, uh, AJ has. So um, yeah, segment was fun. Um, obviously, you don't put him against Elias if the idea is he's a heel. So maybe they are kind of transitioning him into a little bit of a, a different role. Now, staying on the topic of unique first-time matches, and this this was not a first-time match. I actually do think this match happened on SmackDown, but it's a unique match that you're not expecting to see and you got on television. Grand Metalik defeated The Miz. This is another match, again, that I just enjoyed the fact that it was booked. Metalik got most of the early offense until Miz got aggressive, yelling about the Money in the Bank briefcase. Then Metalik caught him with a pinning combination for the upset win. It was a good, short, entertaining match. Boost Metalik a little bit, though I'm not really sure he's going to get the opportunity to capitalize on that. But it was kind of cool for him to win and Miz almost looking like he hit rock bottom because it paid off later in the show where Miz was sitting on some stairs in one of the bombs uh, with John Morrison. Morrison was pitying him for losing and just being really down on his luck. And then all of a sudden, Adam Pierce shows up with the Money in the Bank briefcase. By the way, Tropicana Field, huge stadium. So Adam Pierce just randomly finding the Miz in a bomb. And by the way, it's also multiple levels, right? But just randomly finding him and having the briefcase while looking for him. I just thought it was funny. I didn't really, I'm not trying to like beat quote unquote too smart for the moment. I just thought it was like funny as someone who's worked in stadiums well, extensively. I, I think you could explain it as as he was he was looking for the Miz. And maybe someone okay, said, but hey, to one. walk around the entire first of all, you don't know where he is, so he could no, be but he, he, could, he Pierce could be asking her, "Hey, where's Miss? Hey, I saw him go that way." And I know this isn't really a legitimate criticism. I just <laughs> I, I so so my first job coming out of college, really quick, I, I sold tickets for the Florida Panthers. It was a absolutely horrendous job, uh, but what I did was one part of my job was walking around the arena all game long, every game for an entire season. And I can't tell you how difficult it is to find people. I know there's no fans there, but how large an arena is, how difficult it is to randomly find someone in a bomb. And you'd have to almost know that they were there to go and look for them. So being that this is Tropicana Field, which is like 
twice the size of a normal arena. Again, just the idea I thought was funny of Adam Pierce, like with the briefcase, walking around the entire thing looking for the Miz. That, that's all I'm trying to say. It was, it's not even a criticism. It's just a funny like note on the entire thing. But the point of this entire thing is that he gave Miz kind of a low blow, uh, insulting the Cleveland Browns who lost and Miz is down in the dumps. Then he returned the briefcase saying Miz was right all along. Morrison cannot cash in the briefcase for him. And then Miz and Morrison were freaking hysterical. They did that delayed comedy scream where like you look at the other guy and then you scream. And then they start celebrating by dancing up and down the stairs. I loved, loved that moment, that segment, whatever you want to call it. And I thought Miz and Morrison, you've mentioned it too, over the last month or so, they're finally hitting their stride together. And it's great television. Yeah, like normally... In a vacuum, if you were to say, oh, they just decided to give Miz the briefcase back, we'd be like, oh, this is dumb. They don't know what they're doing. And I still think they're kind of adjusting on the fly with the briefcase. But I, I can look past that if the people involved do a great job telling the story. And first off, Adam Pierce did a great job uh, expressing why this was happening. He didn't want to do it, but he had to. Right. And... and, and, and and he he sold the heck out of it. You could tell he didn't want to do it, but he thought they had a good case. Now you should say, hey, so if Miz had won, therefore that wouldn't have counted either. Yeah, maybe, you know, we don't need to get into that. But Pierce sold it well. And then, yeah, Miz and Morrison dancing was hilarious. These guys are, are really figuring out the, the comedy parts over the last month or so. Um, so maybe they'll have a plan this time. This is now the third time this money in the bank briefcase has been passed to somebody and it seems like they didn't have much of a plan or they keep changing the plans with Otis missed the first time and now missed the second time. So we'll see. I, I, I like having money in the bank out there. So it's still out there. It'll, it'll make something interesting. It was funny. It was weird to just tuck this in at the end of the show and in a, in a backstage segment real quick, but uh, they executed it really well and I enjoyed it. The the thing on the stairs was probably one of my favorite. It was a good. It was a good raw again. It was one of my favorite things on the entire raw. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Uh, and then lastly, Angel Garza kind of rekindled uh, his not his romance really, but his flirtation, I guess, with Charlie Caruso, and said a whole lot of nothing. The twenty four seven guys ran into them and interrupted, and nothing at all happened there. So it almost felt like it was worthless. However, they did pay it off on Raw Talk a little bit because right as the show opened, so Charlie is the host, and R-Truth is the co-host. She called out R-Truth for kind of ruining the moment as she was almost starting to rekindle with Garza, and he turned it around on her, saying that she should be caring about him retaining the 24-7 title since they're co-hosts and friends, that she shouldn't really be worried about Angel Garza. So I just thought it was worthless in the moment, but they gave us like a little taste of something. Hey, we're actually trying here um, on Raw Talk. But again, the Garza Charlie stuff, their interactions are great. But since Garza's returned, it's been a whole lot of nothing. Yes, it's nothing. But you actually missed out on, I thought, was the, was the best part. The interview they did was backstage. I saw it. it. Where it said, great Garza on the I'm wall. I'm a Yankees fan. I don't care about the Rays. No, I but it. It, was, it was Matt Gar. It was, it, it was just funny. It, it, you yeah. know they did it on purpose. And I thought it was funny that they put him in front of the newspaper clipping that said, Great Garza, that I'm almost certain was 
Matt Garza's no hitter against my Detroit Tigers. Absolutely. Uh, so I thought that was really funny. I was like, oh, yeah, th- this is exactly what they should put him in front of that. So it looks, I just thought it was a nice little touch. Don't really care about this at all otherwise, but I popped a little bit for that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, de- I did notice it in the moment. I just didn't think it. I mean, again, I, I hate the Rays. So it was well just, done. I don't, again, I said I hate the Rays. I don't hate the Rays. I hate the Red Sox. I just don't like the Rays at all. So I don't really care um, about any stuff like that. But, Hey, I think we did a good job here because I said I had a long rundown. Seriously, it's basically twice as long as usual. Uh, and we got it done inside of two hours, which I think is a huge success here. Now, I did want to add another note, though, because some news did break while we were taping this show. So we talked about, obviously, in the cold open, uh, the death of Brody Lee. And we mentioned how WWE did honor him during Raw and how some people thought there should have been a little bit more. Well, according to PW Insider, early before Raw began, WWE taped a whole bunch of interviews and stuff with a bunch of their talent all about Brody Lee. So we don't obviously know what that's going to be used for, but it's certainly possible that they will, at a minimum, create some social media videos and segments on it. They very well may be using it to air a video package on SmackDown, which is my expectation. I think there's even a chance, and this is probably less likely, there's a chance they send that footage to AEW and allow kind of AEW to incorporate it into their own package on Dynamite this Wednesday. Again, I don't think that's what's going to happen, but I do think that we're going to get a video package either on SmackDown or maybe frequently across all of WWE social media pages, all of the talents pages, maybe individual video clips that they can all you know post themselves. So I do think WWE in addition to th- doing a very good job, in my opinion, honoring Brody Lee on Raw, clearly they're not, you know, brushing this off. Clearly they understand how important he was to the talent, how important he was to their company for, you know, a good like seven years or so. And I think they're going to continue honoring him in an appropriate manner. That, uh, it's good to hear. And, and like we said at the beginning, whether or not there was a video package, you know, clearly WWE was was fine with all the various ways they wanted to to honor him. So so that's that's good to hear. That's good to hear. And I and actually um one other thing I wanted to update on. We talked about this doesn't have to be a big conversation, but we we talked about a few, a few weeks ago about um Zelina Vega and the Twitch stuff and the gaming and the doing things on her own and you predicted you said you thought in in a, in a few months or a few weeks WWE would announce some sort of gaming thing that in, in, involved everybody in the company. And as it turns out Tonight, the 29th, I believe it's tonight, I think on the WWE Network, uh, WWE is debuting the Superstar Gaming Series, which looks like it's going to include some, I guess, professional gamers. It looks like Wale is involved, I think, and, and they're going to be playing games with various uh, WWE uh, wrestlers. So uh, that it looks like the answer to people not being allowed to use their own names on their Twitch things, and it's exactly what you predicted will happen. Well, you know, I I love giving anytime I get credit and get praised, I will take what I a little bit closer to what I actually predicted was that they'll just start their own Twitch and have them kind of rotate through there. But yes, potentially, maybe they're going to do it on the WWE Network instead. I just think that if they did it on Twitch, there's a lot of money to be made there that I don't think you're making that money on the WWE Network, nor do I think that a gaming series is going to add subscribers for the WWE Network. So my guess is this is just step one. 
and that we still do end up with a Twitch or something like that. Uh, clearly, they are leaning into the cameo deal where now superstars can register through WWE to do cameo, and they're very expensive. I think, you know, some superstars were probably charging like previously 140, 60, whatever the case to do cameos. Um, Undertaker, I forgot what it was. It was in the thousands, I think. I think Whoa. Drew McIntyre just had one that was like four to six hundred dollars per cameo. So that's clearly what they're doing. Their their goal is higher price point, fewer cameos, and potentially the talent getting a significant share of that money. And again, you cannot like it for all the reasons we've discussed in all the episodes about Twitch and Cameo. We're not going to go over it again. But if the talent can get paid at the same level or at a similar level to the way they were previously, that may not be the worst thing in the world. But again, we don't know that that is going to happen. And as of right now, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. So, you know, the criticism stays yeah. where it did and and we can kind of move on from there. Yep. Especially doing it again, like you said, through the network as opposed to a specific channel. But right yeah. on Twitch where it's, you know, um, you can reach a larger audience, a significantly larger audience. And by the way, doing it on Twitch brings people into your product that may not watch wrestling, but happen to like the personality of the Twitch streamer. Right, so that's right. why that's unique and interesting. Whereas when you brand everything WWE, it kind of puts it under this, oh, I don't watch wrestling. Why am I going to watch that? Yeah. And, and actually, and actually, my, my brother's a big gamer and, and he texted me the other day that one of his favorite uh, Twitch streamers was playing games with, with he said, Zelina Vega, Ronda Rousey, and yeah. Renee Young. Uh, so, uh, Renee and Rhonda are, well, Rhonda is huge on Twitch. Like, yeah. I don't know about her following, but she plays games and she loves games. Renee's just starting to get into it. Um, but they did a special with Paige, those three. And yes. A couple yes. Other he women. told me about that one too. Yeah. And they all did a very special show and apparently it was very good and people enjoyed it. So very interesting there, but okay. That is it for today's edition of the getting over wrestling podcast. A reminder, we will be back Wednesday with the Getting Over Awards, the inaugural Getting Over Awards, a.k.a. the Meaties. You guys voted, Chris and I voted, and those votes will be tallied to award almost like two dozen awards. I think we got 20 different awards on the show, so it's going to be a great episode. That's coming Wednesday, and then we will be back on Thursday with our final episode of 2020, breaking down NXT and AEW as they prepare to enter 2021 and a couple of huge shows for those brands coming up soon. I appreciate all of you listening to today's show. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review for this damn show. Thank you all for listening. We will be back on Wednesday and then Thursday. With that, I'm going to leave you with just three final words. Yeah, yeah, yeah.